Hello and welcome to the Sports Law Podcast with me, Nick DeMarco KC of Blackstone Chambers. Today's episode, Formula One and the Law, is actually being recorded at the incredible Williams Formula One Experience Centre here in Oxford, where the racing cars are built and where you can visit one of the largest private collections of Formula One cars in the world. As this episode is focusing on legal issues in Formula One, I'm delighted to be joined by three of the team's top lawyers. Jeremy Stone, the Director of Legal at Williams Racing, Tim Murnane, the Group Legal Director at McLaren Group, and Oliver Rumsey, the Legal Director at Aston Martin Aramco Cognizant Formula One team. We'll be talking about what Formula One lawyers do, some of the big legal issues in Formula One, how they became lawyers in elite motorsports, and what hot topics to look out for in the future. So let's start with a typical week for a Formula One lawyer. What work you guys actually do. Can I start with you, Jeremy? What, what things come across your desk at Williams? Uh, anything, really, all sorts. So there's no typical week in the, in, in the life, I think, of, a, of any of us here, certainly in, in my life. Um, it really just means you're dealing with whatever comes across the desk. So you're the contact person as a legal team for any legal issues that the, the business may have. Um, and that ranges from employment issues through to driver issues, through to disputes, through to anything, esports nowadays as well. So there, there's an element of needing to tailor the advice that you provide to different individuals. So if you're advising the board on certain issues, then they may be more used to dealing with lawyers and legal teams than maybe a, a new joiner in, say, the HR team or somewhere else. So you need to be able to be slightly uh, flexible with your advice, be able to provide that to different sorts of people. Um, but generally speaking, it, there is no typical week. There's no typical piece of work. And in any given day, I've got no idea what's going to come across my desk, which is great for me. I, it's the way that I prefer to work. I'm more of a generalist than, even though I'd like to think I'm a, probably a specialist in certain areas, but I certainly enjoy the, the challenge of, of the general type of work that comes across. Um, so from a Formula One side, there's an element of a cycle, I suppose, where from a, an idea or concept in, in a designer's head through to designing the car, through to building the car, through to testing it and racing it for a full season, and then becoming obsolete in the factory downstairs, in the museum, sorry, downstairs, then that whole cycle is, is 18 months. So there's always that, that cadence going on in the background. And I guess one of the main benefits of Formula One is there's no relegation. So you can mm. plan a little bit from year to year. And there are always parts of the year you can rely on. So car build is massively busy. Um, you then go into testing, both safety testing and then on track testing through to the season and then the shutdown periods as well. So there's a bit of planning that you can do, but uh, from day to day, um, no idea what's going to come across my desk, and, and that's the challenge. Is there then a quiet time of the year? So shutdown is probably the quietest time. Of the these these two might think differently, but certainly shutdown when it's mandated by but by the regulations that the teams can't do any work on uh, Formula One related work. Then, by definition, those tend to be quieter periods. So the summer shutdown, and then if it happens, the winter shutdown as well. But uh, but generally speaking. Those would be the only quiet times, I think, in any given year. Tim, what about your work as a lawyer at McLaren? Yeah, I think um, echo many of Jeremy's comments, really, in terms of there's never really a, a normal sort of set week. Where we're a little bit different is that we've um, perhaps a little bit more diversified than some of the other teams in the sense that we've got 
in addition to Formula One now, we've got basically an IndyCar team, an Extreme E team, and a Formula E team, and also the, the esports, as Jeremy um, mentioned. So we've got lawyers in the automotive um, side of the business, we've got lawyers in Formula One. I'm quite hands-on in the Formula One because um, it's an interesting thing to be involved with. It's very important, and I think the lawyers potentially can make a bigger difference there than they, they can perhaps in you know, the areas you actually can influence the, the outcome. Um, in terms of things we're involved with, as I say, there's, there's not a typical week, but over the last year or so, um, we've done a lot of driver contracts because we've got, now got four racing series, and um, so I counted before I came over here today, and I think during 2022, I think we've done driver contracts with 12 different drivers, so it's, um, and each one of those, is, as Ollie and uh, Jeremy will know, are, uh, are quite a significant endeavour. You're talking about promotional appearances, IP rights, um, exit rights, options, terminations, fees, tax, all that kind of thing. And the other one then has been um, been sponsorship because we as an independent team aren't relying on the, the large OEM to finance us. We have to finance ourselves. So basically we're very active in the sponsorship market. Again, that's where a lawyer can make a difference with quick turnaround. Like for me, I'm often waking up to stuff that's coming from the US overnight and we try and turn it around as quickly as possible because we want to win the contract or retain the sponsor. So. Um, that's probably the highlights for me would be those to flag those up. I was just reading um, coming up this morning about uh, the importance of being careful. This was in relation to football in sponsorship with reputational issues. I think to do with some of the NFTs who've sponsored and then gone. Is, is that a, an issue you have to think yeah, of in, in um, F1 too? Cause I've been in Formula 1 quite a long time. I remember when um, I first started out, reputational issues weren't really something I think it used to come up. But now it's a big area of, of emphasis where, um, you know, sponsors basically want to get out and it's just really, really a negotiation then as to whether it's objective, subjective, um, material or, or just any damage to brand, that kind of thing you tend to have a discussion about probably now in, I would say, most contracts. Yeah, yeah I think that's happened both ways as well. Yeah. So it started out, I think, originally with... The, the, the rights holders, the teams, whether it's football or Formula One, looking for those provisions in the relevant contracts. And then as brands become more sophisticated, yeah. then yeah. they've asked for the reciprocal provisions, which yeah. is quite difficult to yeah. logically argue against. Yeah, yeah like for example, if you've got, if you've got a, a large partner, you know, contemplating sort of losing them mid-season, uh, just out of the blue because of the fact that a particular person, say, who's in a quite a junior position has done something they shouldn't, you know, that's obviously quite a difficult situation to tolerate. So it's those kind of discussions you're yes. going to be having, really seniority of the people. Uh, if you terminate the person, then does that make the, the right go away? All, all, all sorts of sort of minutiae around that. I'm sure it's the same for, for Molly and Jeremy. Yeah, well, mo moving on to you, Oli. T tell us about the issues that you come across most frequently at Aston Martin. Well, uh, I definitely agree with the other chaps and their comments. Um, there is no such thing as a normal day in the office. I, I have a bit of a phrase that some of my colleagues know. It's everything from drivers to doormats. You, you don't know what you're gonna get. And it's that sort of um, SME style in-house uh, generalist skill set that you need to start with to service the business. But then from there, you obviously have to do the more specialist stuff, the, the, whether it's drivers or sponsorship, the more sports orientated things that, that come up. And and I was really interested in, in two things that Jeremy and Tim said separately. Jeremy mentioned the cycle, and I was really interested by that because that's definitely something that I recognize, um, particularly when I, so I started in Formula One at the beginning of 2010. 
And in the early days, I saw that a lot. But actually, uh, as time has gone on, I've actually found that's eroded as a concept. You just flat out all of the time now. <laughs> you know, it used to be the case that you had an off season and it was quieter and you could predict and plan. And that's when we'll do our filing and we'll, you know, get our precedents updated and so on and so forth. That time has been eroded. I don't know if you, if you feel the same way, but I, I've definitely yeah, noticed I, that. I, I, I definitely do, Ollie. And I think also the pandemic has changed things. Um, mm. It changed people's working practices and... Um, it's still, in my opinion, has not settled down since then, mm. and it's still got this sort of slightly manic element about the world, the, the way the world conducts itself. And um, I think that th throws up issues for us as lawyers because we've got to obviously try and make things more orderly. And mm. um, I definitely still feel that. I don't know if it's the same for you guys. Yeah. Yeah, I think in terms of the um, the quiet time point, there is there is no quiet time, and I think for people listening in on the podcast who are perhaps considering a career in in sports and Formula One, you know, you've got to be prepared to be available 24-7, yeah. and as in literally 24-7. And it, yeah, it varies, but, uh, and again, especially since the pandemic, that's really intensified itself. Yeah, the 24-7 point is, is a really good one too, because um, it's easy to forget, if you're not into it, that uh, as of next year, uh, F1 will be racing in 24 international jurisdictions, all in a different time zone, mm. right? Mm. You're you're not, as a lawyer, in each of those time zones. You, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't don't go to that many races. People always ask, "Do you go to the races?" I don't go to that many races. But um, the point is, if the issue arises trackside, they will call, yeah. and you, yeah. you better answer because some of the deadlines for for things like appeals and protests and things, which uh, you know we may come on to later, they're 30 minutes in the local time frame. So at whatever time it is, from Melbourne to Vegas or whatever, you, you've got 30 minutes to answer the phone and deal with the issue in the middle of the night. So, Yeah, well, as we saw in the recent case with, with Haas, that deadline absolutely. was applied strictly. And they yes. they had good grounds, but then it was contested. And because they didn't make it within that time period, it was effectively thrown out. Um, that had big consequences on the, um, on, on the championship. Yes. Yeah. So no turning your email or phones off after 6 no, p.m. on no. a Sunday evening. No. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but what we do is basically we give the team at track a pack. So they've got all they need and they've got everything ready. But there's obviously still the chance they're going to ring. They're going to ring. And as you say, Ollie, you've got to be able to take that call. You? And yeah. likewise for disaster planning or, or, or emergency planning, there yeah. needs to be people. It's obviously an extremely dangerous sport yeah. and fundamentally. So there's, there's all sorts of emergency plans that are put in place with... Um, often the, um, the legal team's phone number included as part of it. Yeah. And, and just so I have an idea, how big are the legal teams at the teams? I mean, I guess that varies, but how big is yours too? Well, in, um, in the group as a whole, on the automotive road car side of things, we've got five. Um, then in Formula One, there's one specific lawyer doing sort of day-to-day -day operational stuff. Then there's myself basically... Um, overseeing all of that but i'm hands-on in formula one in terms of things like driver contracts and sponsorship so we we in formula one probably got effectively equivalent to two fte's mm. we have four at williams mm. uh, four specifically here on site uh, at grove uh, there's also another um two that we potentially have have, have use of um, based out where our owners are out in new york yeah. as well Ollie? yeah we're a team of four as well um that's a recent development, I should add. Um, historically, uh, the Silverstone team in its various guises has been one or two. So, um, but with everything that's going on and the arrival of the Aston Martin brand, it was just, you know, 
plus the F1 work, mm. it was impossible for two people to do it. Mm. So we had to expand. I think there's an interesting point around legal teams in, in Formula One, which I'm not sure happens necessarily in other other sports, where there's quite a lot of instances where the in interests of the various teams are aligned. Obviously, we're competitors yeah. and we race against each other every other weekend. Um, but there are certain instances where we do work together. And so, for example, it can range from things like where that, and this is, I think, mainly uh, derived because there are only 10 teams. But if you have a counterfeit uh, set of merchandiser or someone out there who's ripping off your, your, your merch or your clothing, then in football, then they may focus on maybe five, six teams. In Formula One, they'll tend to do all 10 because right. there are at yeah. only in time 10 teams. Yeah. So we often um, talk amongst each other or, or, or exchange notes around that sort of thing, as well as when we're maybe negotiating as a collective. Um, so I don't know, maybe for the, for the winter testing arrangements or for the Netflix um, arrangements mm. with Formula One, then the teams will act collaborative, collaboratively. And I'll work with, with, with Tim and Ollie and whoever else at, at the other teams in order to achieve a, a common goal. Well, I want to move on now to some of the legal issues, the big legal issues in Formula One in more depth. And I think we're going to have to start with the cost cap because we've all been hearing so much about that recently. Jeremy, can you start with a, an explanation of what it is and how it works? Of course. So the cost cap in Formula One is effectively Formula One's version of a, of a salary cap. So it's a, it's a cap on the amount that teams can spend on their cars as opposed to um, maybe f uh, financial fair play in football, which is um, amount of, uh, of losses or allowable losses that a team can make versus their profits. Mm. So in Formula One, that one of the main differentiators is the amount spent on the car, because generally speaking, the more you spend on the car, the quicker it is, the better the car does, the better the team does. So there are uh, certain exclusions to, to that spending cap, which can be things such as driver salaries, marketing costs, and hopefully legal costs. Mm. Um, but really, it's a cap on the amount that teams can spend every year. So it started out at 175 million US dollars a year. That was brought down quite quickly to 145 million due to the impact of COVID and that severely impacted COVID season that we all uh, worked through. That then bumped back up a bit recently due to inflation and the global parts and materials supply, supply chain issues and, and costs. But the intent from the, from the regulations and, and, and from uh, from Formula One is that that'll be a glide path down to about 135 million US dollars by the time we get to 2025. So that, that's the rules. Does that mean the cars are going to get slower every year? No, it just means there's a new race in terms of efficiency of spending. Right. Which previously with oh, there wasn't there. Yeah. A new race in terms of efficiency? <laughs> yeah, of it's just a, a new focus, I think, for all of the teams. Um, so I think it's also important to think about how it's policed and enforced because those rules are only as as good as, mm. uh, as as the policing of them. So the process is that all teams then have to submit their, their reports, their finance, their, their, their accounts by 31st of March the following year to, to the season. That then gets reviewed by the cost cap administrators who will then uh, decide if, if the team's in breach or not. If they are, there are two types of penalty. One is for a minor overspend, which is anything uh, up to 5% and, and anything that's major would be at over 5% uh, overspend. The penalties are pretty similar for both because um, Formula One has to retain, or the FI rather, has to retain um, the ability to hand out relatively bespoke penalties mm. due to the type of pun punishment or, or the type of breach rather that is that is incurred. But they, those penalties can be or punishments can be sporting, both 
points deductions, suspension from the championship, restrictions on aerodynamic testing or, or wind tunnel time, which we've seen. Um, whereas that can apply for minor and major. If it's a major breach, you can also potentially be excluded from the championship um, entirely. So there are also financial penalties, which can be a reduction of the cap that the teams enjoy in future years. So once the uh, CCA, uh, the cost cap administrators have decided and issued a, a, a penalty, the team can then either accept that breach, enter into what's known as an accepted breach agreement, or if not, then it goes up to the cost cap adjudication panel, who are a, a team of independent judges, and ultimately it can then be appealed up to the ICA, which is the ultimate um, appeal court for motorsport. Okay. Ollie, tell us a bit more about the um, origin of the cap and uh, what you think the likely future impact of it will be on the sport. Yeah, so from, uh, from an Aston Martin perspective, the, the cap is quite an interesting and exciting area because Tim alluded earlier on to, to being an independent team and obviously although um, although we're associated with with Aston Martin it's not the case that we have major OEM financial backing uh, of the sort seen by some of the quote-unquote bigger teams so so looking at a cost cap and referring back to what Jeremy said earlier about effectively your budget being your your squad your your, your strength and depth of players having a, a cap is a really exciting thing because fundamentally it brings about the possibility of greater equality between teams right so if you look at the objectives of the cap they're, st they're actually stated within the regulations in article 1.3 and they say competitive balance sporting fairness and long-term financial stability right and i don't think anybody can argue against those objectives you know whether you're right at the front or you're struggling further behind that they're, 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 they're laudable so if achieved it's, it's a great objective or a great set of objectives. I think that um, historically, uh, for, for, for a team like Aston Martin, which in its previous guises as, as Racing Point and, 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 and before that Force India, it's obvious to see why this would be a good thing. You don't have to go that far back into our history to see major financial troubles, because obviously our team was bought by Mr. Stroll and his consortium in August 2018, after the previous owner, and management team had had issues with you know financial issues should we say and um and it looked like the team was going to go out of business altogether so anything that sort of i suppose in a way saves us from ourselves you know the temptation is there it's not a normal business it's a sport it's a passion shall i spend that extra pound to get that extra tenth of a second that temptation is always there so if you can have a regime that everybody buys into uh, whereby it is agreed that if you spend that extra pound and that extra pound leaves you in breach of the cost cap, you, it's, it's self-defeating. You will have sporting sanction. You will have sporting penalty. So the sacrosanct goal of performance can be harmed if you don't buy into the concept of, of, of respecting the, the overall cost cap. Uh, from, from our perspective, it's really interesting because, okay, there, there is the idea of fairer racing. Everybody's working to the same budget, everybody has the same depth of squad, to use Jeremy's analogy. That's the first thing. But actually, if you think about it, and certainly from an Aston Martin perspective, it's more than just racing. Because it leads into things like um, considering value of teams, right? So for example, if, 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 if one is having closer racing, 
and therefore the teams are competing uh, more frequently with one another, there are more overtakes, there's more exciting racing, there's greater audiences, then all of a sudden the, the, the value of a team that can perform and compete with the big teams goes up. And then you also, and, and Jeremy um, didn't touch on this, but it is something that I think he would agree is, is a feature of the financial regulations, is that teams are starting to diversify and do other things as a result of the regulations to optimize their position legally under the regulations. And that means that their technology is being applied in other areas, not just on track. So on track technology is being applied off track. Now we've got two pioneers of doing that here because you know we had Williams Advanced Engineering and McLaren Applied Technology. So we've got two very early adopters sitting on the other side of the table, but they've done this very well. And I think that if teams can respect the cap, optimize under the cap, and make a genuine business of diversification, coupled with more exciting racing, no um, relegation, as Jeremy mentioned already, this is something that can really help increase the value of teams. So, so there's a whole load of good reasons for doing this. And um, as much as it's been, you know, there have been teething issues in the introduction, um, but but I think that as we as we move forward, I think it will be really good for the teams, even if even if some teams have struggled with the with the initial introduction, maybe a bit. That's that's fascinating about the the, the way in which it may strengthen the sport. And of course, the other point you make, which is very different to football, as, as Jeremy alluded to, is that um, it's about competitive balance here, whereas in football, the more money you earn, the more money you can spend. Yeah. So it, it, it doesn't promote competitive yeah, balance. Yeah, it's fundamentally but the a different model. That's, yes. yeah, the idea is to close, one of the fundamental ideas is to close the, close the grid up to make mm. sure that you get a better spectacle. As a, perhaps a cynical way of looking at it is you get a better spectacle, higher broadcast fees, then more money coming into the sport. Um, but yeah, it, 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 the the goal was to improve the uh, equality mm. and to ensure a level playing field. And in, in that way, it's much more similar to maybe the salary cap in, in, in rugby or in US sports rather yes. than, than FFP, which... Which again are closed leagues, the US sports, which is may make it easier for these sort of rules to exist in those environments. Uh, obviously, the big news recently was about Red Bull being... Uh, the Red Bull team um, fined... Uh, I think just over six million pounds for exceeding the cap by one point eight six million pounds. So I think that that must be a minor breach. Looks like less than five percent. And my understanding was it was one of these accepted breaches or agreed breaches. But nevertheless, the Red Bull's team principal uh, described the penalty as providing an advantage to our competitors, which is why they were pushing so hard. For a draconian penalty of course the penalty included not just a fine but a 10 percent reduction in aerodynamic testing that that team's allowed to make was christian horner right to describe this as a draconian penalty that you were all baying for or oh, i'm happy to happy to take it um it's it's a tricky one because it's the first it's the first first instance where the the cost cap regulations have been tested and have been and have been applied. So I think fundamentally, that Ollie mentioned it earlier, that in order to, to be effective, those rules need to have teeth. And in order to be a, um, a disincentive for other teams to, to breach those regulations moving forwards, those regulations have to have sporting penalties. If they were just financial penalties, teams may say, well, it might be worth it in, if I was just gonna get a fine, perhaps. So in order to, to be really effective, that the regulations do need to have 
do need to have sporting penalties, and that's what this is. It's a, it's a sporting penalty. Um, and I think it's really fundamental to the integrity of the sport moving forward. So we've said about a, a better, a better um, TV product or a better product, more exciting racing. But fundamentally, if, if a team does incredibly well on track and the first reaction that fans have from a fan perspective is that they're querying, well, why is this happening? Is it just because of whatever it might be, maybe an overspend, then that's going to damage the product, damage the, the F1 brand around the world and ultimately lead to fewer eyeballs and, and, and less money rolling into the sport from, from broadcast rights. Yeah, I wouldn't want to comment on any particular case, uh, but what I would say in regard to the cost cap, I think it's incredibly important. Uh, echoing the comments of Holly and Jeremy, I think um, it, ma it basically makes the um, sport economic to, um, to compete in and it's not a situation where the team with the biggest checkbook wins it, which has got to be a good good thing um, I think it has to be properly policed uh, and I think at the moment it is I think the, um, the, the the people doing it are doing a great job in challenging the teams and um, I think the teams do fear the consequences of um, any any sanction I think the one thing we haven't touched on is aside from sporting consequence I think there's a big reputational issue for anybody who breaches the regs mm. and um, I think that's going to be as big a disincentive, especially for um, for teams associated with big sponsors or parent OEMs, that kind of stuff, to not breach, as is the case of the fear of sporting or financial penalty. Yeah. And as Jeremy says, I think uh, it's got to be sporting, because if it's financial, it's basically you can take a risk, and uh, it just doesn't work. Yes. I'm interested just in understanding a bit more about this, uh, the, the sporting element of the sanction in the Red Bull case. Uh, the 10% reduction in aerodynamic testing element of the penalty. Uh, what does that actually mean, and how will it affect the car that is produced, do you think? Well, I would normally defer to one of my aerodynamicist colleagues with a question like that, but, but in broad terms from a lawyer's perspective, just to pick up on where Tim left off, uh, for, for some teams, um, crudely, uh, money isn't really an issue. So you can't just have financial penalties. So that therefore means you have to have sporting penalties. And in this particular case, um, there are aerodynamic testing restrictions that are placed on teams as part of the rules of the sport. You're allowed a certain quota and based on the preceding season's results, your quota may be greater or less. If you had a more difficult season, you further down the order, then you get more testing time to catch up. If you're at the front, you get less because you're in the league. Now, um, to reduce that time by a percentage would obviously have an impact upon the following season's car performance, um, as you would expect. Now, I, I'm, I'm not au fait with the intricacies of um, the quotas and, and you know, what kind of consequence would arise as a result of a 10% reduction, but, um, but my understanding is, from a sort of semi-layman's perspective, that it, it would impact upon the following season's uh, car to have that that type of um, that type of sanction, but I, I, to what extent I couldn't really say. That, that broadly the view around here. Yeah. yeah. Well, we could talk about the cost cap all day, but we've got some other big issues in in Formula One to cover as well. And the second one I want to talk about is what's often referred to as team moves, legal disputes between teams arising from uh, drivers, for example, or key personnel. 
um, leaving one team to join another, maybe sometimes taking trade secrets with them. There's been a long history of cases in this area. Tim, can you tell us about how these disputes are dealt with yeah. uh, today in Formula One? Yeah, um, Nick, there's two um, categories I'd place this in, really. The first category is drivers, which is regulated by something specific to Formula One called the Contract Recognition Board. And the other one, which deals with, again, uh, Jeremy's good analogy, squad, which is more just the general court. So I'll deal with the uh, Formula One CRB first, if I can. So this was set up in around about the early 90s because what was happening is drivers were just signing contracts with numerous teams, complete chaos and uh, stuff ending up in court, bad publicity for the sport. So the very good idea was um, initiated of a Formula One contract recognition board. So what does that mean? Well, essentially, when you sign a contract with, um, with a driver, you have an obligation to file that contract with the Formula One Contract Recognition Board, which is a firm of independent lawyers based in Geneva. And they then effectively enter the name of that driver on a register that they keep. And when Formula One come to issue super licenses at the um, start of the season, they match that driver name up against the um, name lodged on the team entry form with that um, with the name on that form, and you have to have that registration as a condition of issuing the super license. That's the policing mechanism. So question then, coming back to disputes, what happens if there's a dispute? Well, if team A's already registered a contract, and then team B signed a contract with that same driver for a conflicting period of time, whether that's a fixed term or option, because you also have to register options as well as um, contract length, the CRB then notify both teams and say, look, there's a conflict here, and they're given an opportunity to try and sort it out. If that dispute does not get sorted out, there's then a hearing convened of four effectively arbitrators, mm. one from the UK, one from Italy, one from France, and one from Germany. That's done in very rapid order, and a decision's rendered in rapid order because basically people can't be kept hanging with this because they know if they haven't got a driver, they've got to find another one yeah. and the market could be moving against them. So um, that, in a nutshell, is the is the CRB position. The teams, and, and just on that, yeah. Tim, before you move on, has that led to, in your view, a, a, a downturn or a decline in the sort of number of big disputes between drivers and clubs? And certainly... Um, our chamber's senior clerk, Gary Oliver, came up uh, with me today and we were talking about how we remember in the early 90s and before a lot of these cases in the High Court, yeah, uh, yeah. which could drag on for some time. Yeah, yeah. I think it has improved the, um, the situation in that regard, perhaps not for uh, external lawyers and barristers, <laughs> but uh, for, for in-house lawyers. The, um, the other important facet of the, um, of the system is that the teams are obliged to use this, so you, you you basically are not allowed to go to the High Court for It's an mandatory arbitration. It's a mandatory arbitration. Yes. You can still proceed for damages if you think you've got a case for um, breach of contract inducement, that kind of thing. But um, but the actual CRB is is, is binding, and um, there's no, there's no scope to go around that. So um, that I see as as as, as positive and, yeah. a, and a good thing for the for the sport. The other side of it, dealing with the with the squad, I think Nick is is basically still as it always was in the sense of 
you've got a situation where generally the the high value members of the squad, the aerodynamicists, the engineers, this kind of thing, are much sought after because they are the people who effectively make the difference as to whether you're competitive or not competitive on track or one of the features. And they're normally signed on long-term uh, fixed-term contracts. And there's usually a provision in there where there's gardening leave if, um, if one of them wants to move to a competitor so that effectively you can try and isolate your confidential information, technical secrets, so on and so forth. But quite often, you know, some teams will not be prepared to wait for that period of time and will be trying to take that employee from team A to their team B. And that quite often results in, in disputes of people alleging breach of contract. There's been injunctions granted, there's been injunctions lifted. And um, that is still, I think, quite an active area. A lot of it doesn't get in the public domain. So I, I'm not aware of one of these cases ever having got to a full trial because not just in Formula One or sport, I don't think these cases actually ever or rarely ever get to trial. It's, it's more at the interim stage where you have the, you have the uh, initial skirmish and, mm -hmm. and people come into terms of their emotions and um, we're never going to let them go, this kind of thing. And then usually in the end, a deal is yeah. thrashed out of some sort. So, um, so that's really the position in, in regard to my perspective then on how driver and team moves are handled in Formula One. I think it's interesting in Formula One specifically as well with those, um, those individuals that you mentioned just then, Tim, because Formula One is, is a slightly strange industry in that seven, I think seven of the 10 teams have bases of operation in, in the UK, but all within 30, 40 miles of each other. So you have all of this world-class talent or aerodynamicists or designers, like you say, Tim, yeah. all within a really condensed geographic area. And so there is a bit of movement, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and because you say, as you rightly yeah. say, they can often be the difference makers. Exactly, and many of them, I've got to say, are very brilliant people. Yeah. You know, it's, um, we, we have the benefit of being able to attract the sort of best technical talent, I think, because um, you know, if you've got a choice of working for an engineering company or working for a Formula One team, you're going to go for a Formula One team. Mm -hmm. and, uh, to pick up on one thing that you mentioned, Tim, yeah. uh, about the CRB process, actually, just mm. winding back a little bit. So when I first came into... Formula One um, in 2010, it struck me as a very odd process. I mean, it was it's, it's kind of akin to player registrations yes, in football, but, that, yeah. um, but, but not. Uh, and the thing that struck me about it was not just the fact, as Tim mentioned, that you have this obligation to go to arbitration, which is a very legalistic thing. And if you're having to explain that internally to your colleagues at a racing team, they may or may not, depending on who you're talking to, give you the time of day, mm. you know. But if you explain to them, uh, sorry, but actually the driver can't get in the car. Yep. He physically can't get in the car and will not be granted a super license to drive unless and until this is sorted. They've kind of bookended both yep. sides of the requirement. It's actually quite yep. a clever thing. It, it's, a, yep. it's, a, it's an old and tried process that actually works, I, I think, quite well for, for yep. that reason. Um, third issue I want to cover is how the sport is regulated generally. Um, and... Again, if I if I come from a football perspective for a moment, you've got a kind of hybrid situation in England where you've got, for instance, the Premier League or the Football League, self-regulation run by the clubs, and then you've also got the FA, which is sort of semi-independent regulator. Formula One, what, what kind of regulation model is that, Oli? Goodness, um, that's a big question. Well, um, maybe if we split it into two sections and we talk about the regulations themselves and then the formulation of regulations. And please feel free to chip in at any point on either, either topic. So thinking of the regulations themselves, the 
starting point for me really would be the International Sporting Code. So you have the International Sporting Code and that is uh, issued by the FIA, it's updated each year and, and essentially it sets out the broad rules for motorsport no matter what the formula. Okay, so uh, it could apply just as equally to say rallying as Formula One or Formula Two or whatever and it sets out general principles, jurisdiction of the FIA as governing body, course requirements, stewards and circuits, appointment of officials, that sort of thing. So that, that's your, your baseline. What you then have is specific regulations that apply to the different types of motorsport. So obviously you couldn't have the same rules for Formula One race as you would for a stage of a rally, for example. So you have, uh, specifically to, to Formula One, you have the technical regulations, obviously. Now the technical regulations govern things, all the technical things, as the name suggests, relating to the car. So, you know, mass and dimensions and so on. But but then more detailed regulation about things like power units and fuel requirements and electrical systems, gearboxes, suspension, and so on. So very technical based. That tends to be car related. You then have sporting regulations, and that's kind of the rules of the game, right? It's, it's what you can and can't do over the course of a race weekend, okay? So coming back to the previous discussion about super licenses, the rule about licenses for teams and drivers, and then all the things one would generally think of when you think of a Formula One race, so qualifying and pit stops and what tyres you have to use and safety cars and protest appeals and scrutinizing and so on. So that's the rules during the weekend. And then obviously we've got this new limb, as we've touched on already, uh, you know, un, un, unusual for, for, for if you were looking back and thinking 10 years ago plus financial regulations. It's a, it's a whole new area and, and we've already sort of discussed that, but essentially it, it's restrictions and limitations regarding financial resource applicable to participation uh, and the rules relating to that and then policing and sanction and so on. So to sort of gather it all up, You've got the general rules in the ISC, you've got technical, sporting, and financial, and those are the rules in, in a nutshell. There are peripheral bits about judicial and disciplinary rules and what you can and can't do in front of an international tribunal or the International Court of Appeal, but, but really that's more process-related than, than the meat of the thing. So if those are the rules as they exist, broadly, um, in terms of how they're created, it's, well, you start normally from the preceding season's regulations. So if you want to know what the regulations are in year Y, a good place to start is year X, because mm. that's what they're gonna be based upon broadly. And then they get changed each year, obviously. So how does that come about? Well, you have um, advisory committees, specialist advisory committees that deal with each of the three buckets of regulation. You have the financial advisory committee, the technical advisory committee, and the sporting advisory committee. And they're largely uh, comprised of experts in each of those areas, as you'd expect. So you'd have CFOs of Formula One teams, you'd have a representative from, um, from, often from the regulator in each of those. You'd have your team managers on the sporting side or your sporting directors, um, and then your technical directors on the technical side. And they talk together about what, what did we learn from last year? This did go well, this didn't go well. How do we, would we tweak the rules in future? And then once a consensus is reached, and, and frequently it is not a unanimous consensus, uh, I think we'd agreed, because obviously has, everyone has their own interests, you, the advisory committees then make suggestions upwards to the F1 Commission. So the F1 Commission is a representative from each team, mm -hmm. plus uh, a representative from the FIA, plus a representative from the commercial rights holder. And they talk about the suggestions that have come from each of the advisory committees, and they try and come to a consensus as to what will and will not be taken forward into 
the following season's regulations. And if you were to read the things I described a minute ago, you'd realise that uh, some of them go through, some of them don't, and there are voting thresholds and so on and so forth as to what makes the grade. Assuming something gets approved at the F1 Commission, it then goes up one more level to the World Motorsport Council, which essentially is an oversight body of the FIA. And what they do is they look at what's being proposed, make sure it's in the best interests of the sport. It's, it's almost like a sanity check in the, in the process, a kind of a fail safe. And they can accept or reject the proposal in the vast majority of cases. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever known a World Motorsport Council reject something. So they almost always approve it. What they can't do is make counter proposals. They can just say yes or no, but they can't say, no, you should do this. That, that's not their role in the process. So in a nutshell, those are the rules and those are how they're formulated. Thank you. Does it work? Uh, I, that's a big question. <laughs> um, but I think that the only thing I'd add to, to, to Ollie's point is that it, you're right, 100% it's an iterative process, mm. um, but it can be iterative throughout the season as well. So these, thing, these regulations and these rules can, can change. They, uh, there's often technical directives issued throughout the season as, as things are discovered or as, as loopholes are closed. So that it, it's not just a year-on-year -year iterative process, but, but, but during the season as well. So it keeps, keeps everyone on their toes. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that area is ripe for teams to have discussions because technically speaking, the technical directives that are issued mid-season do not have regulatory standing. They're guidance on the rules as written. So if you go against the technical directive, you can do that and still, in theory, be in compliance with the rules. But if you're going to go against what the regulating body is saying is the correct interpretation, you better have a pretty good reason for doing so because you might get pulled up on it. But in theory, you can receive one of these technical directives, say, well, that's lovely. I'm reading the rule differently. I'm going to stick to my interpretation. And it's up to you if you want to play that card because you may get pulled up. And that is an area where sometimes teams can come unstuck and, and and so you know obviously when we mentioned what we do on a day-to-day -day basis uh, I don't know about the other two but sometimes I'm given directives and, and and asked to look at them and then look at the rule and then give an opinion and, and it's an interesting thing because sometimes what you're asked about is relatively straightforward conceptually but as as Tim mentioned before, sometimes, I mean, the, the people we're dealing with are extremely bright and very, very specialist. Yep. And so yep. something that might be obvious to them, they try and explain to you and you struggle to sort of, in my case, probably not you two, but in my case, I struggle to keep up sometimes with the technical um, jargon and the technical concepts. But you are the decision maker. You can be the decision maker as to what kind of an approach you're going to take on this technical point. And, and so that is an instance where as a lawyer you really can impact the performance of the car and the performance over a race weekend because obviously if you go with the engineer's preferred route that might lead to big performance games if you kibosh it well the lawyer said no it was a non-starter we you know you, you can't interpret it that way so it's quite an interesting area um i'm going to move on now to the part of the podcast that's often the most popular with our listeners um because it's about how you got to the fascinating jobs that you now hold being um in-house head of legal disputes at top formula one teams what was your journey tim can i start with you what yeah. was your journey to mclaren yeah i was um i'm almost certain in saying i was the first formula one team lawyer when i joined formula one formula one the commercial rights holder did have in-house lawyers i think 
that's probably what gave Ron Dennis the idea that it would be a good idea for um, McLaren to have its own um, in-house capability. And at that particular time, we were in that particular era, far and away the most successful team, probably on track and possibly also commercially. Um, before I was at McLaren, I was general counsel at um, a consumer goods company. And um, probably fair to say that that job was bigger than the McLaren job then was. But when you get an opportunity like that, I think most people would say, yeah, I think I fancy that. I think I'll, I'll give it a go. And I, and I initially intended just to stay a few years, um, but I've been there ever since. So how many years is it? Come on. <laughs> It'll be 32 years next year. Gosh, yeah. so, that's um, amazing. I always joke with Tim when I see him because um, I think last time we, we, we went for lunch and um, and I was saying, oh, coming up in my 14th year, and you say, a young pup, just, just started. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so, so I'm fortunate that the job's grown with me because when I, when I started with McLaren, the turnover was 50 million, you know, um, with road cars and all that kind of thing. It's now various times grown to in excess of a billion. So um, I'm lucky it's sort of gone up the curb with me and, and retained sufficient interest and challenge because there's plenty of those um, as as the time's gone, gone, gone by. I think um, I think one thing I probably underestimated was, I think, as we've talked already, that the job consists of stuff which is sports law and stuff which is just basically the same as any in-house lawyer does. I think probably initially I underestimated um, the amount of sports law experience needed, but then really going back then and what your experience is, Nick, but there probably were less people calling themselves sports lawyers than there are yeah. than there are now. Absolutely, yeah. But I did, um, I did again, grow into that with the with the with the job and um I also did um a few years afterwards a postgraduate certificate in sports law at King's College. And uh, did you find that helpful? Yeah I did. Yeah. I think um it was quite academic but it sort of put some things into context and perspective. Um, I did that. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it yeah. transferred to De Montfort but same yeah. course. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'll, I'll tackle it in a slightly different way. So I get I do a, a little bit of mentoring for for students and, and law students and I often find the, the question I get asked most is what's the pathway how do I get mm. get along and get onto that path to start with so um, my, my my pathway was that I was originally considering being a lawyer and I spoke to this is when I was a student at A levels I think uh, I spoke to a, a family friend who was a lawyer who said whatever you do don't do a law degree and there's nothing against doing a law degree but I've met very few people who did a law degree and enjoyed their time while doing the law degree um, so I did something completely different. I did uh, geography at un university, and then with the intention of changing to to law, doing that postgraduate. I think it's called the was called the GDL at my time. I think it's called something else now. But the conversion course, which I then did, um, and I as part of that, I was applying to the same old firms that I think most of everyone kind of tends to start applying to as part for training contracts. And I wasn't really getting anywhere. I wasn't getting any breaks. And so I sat down and thought about it. I was like, why aren't I getting? Well, I didn't quite understand what was going on. So at the time, I started looking at what was called the Chambers Student Guide. I don't mm. know if it still exists, but um, it's probably is. online if yeah. it exists nowadays. <laughs> Magazine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was working my way through that and, and turning down the pages or the corners of the pages of these firms that tended to specialise in sports law or music law. And I hadn't even realised that that was a, an option, a, a type of law that, that, was, that was a possibility. I then started applying to those firms and immediately had much better success because I was actually enthusiastic around the type of work that 
they were doing and those firms were doing rather than trying to pretend that I was enthusiastic about something that I really wasn't. And um, so I went over, I'd got a training contract at a firm called Sheridan, so I think you know Nick, um, and qualified as a music lawyer. So I moved into their music team because that was one of the things I really wanted to do. Uh, worked there for three years, looking after bands and artists, um, and the music industry wasn't really for me after a few years, so pivoted out, moved into sports law, and went in-house at IMG, looking after uh, the media rights for properties like Wimbledon, Rugby World Cup, and some smaller ones like um, Giro d'Italia and a few others, which was fascinating, really good grounding in those media rights, broadcast rights, buying and selling those, those rights and selling them to broadcasters around the world, as well as the on-site production facilities around Wimbledon and Rugby World Cup. Um, so I did a full Rugby World Cup cycle, culminating in Rugby World Cup 2015, which was great on, you know, the home World Cup was, was not great for England, but great to work on, yeah. uh, as well as four or five Wimbledons, and got to the end of that cycle and said, well, what's next? The answer was another four or five Wimbledons and another Rugby World Cup cycle, which I wasn't particularly enthusiastic about. So I took the opportunity of a place like IMG that's got such a breadth of work and moved into the talent representation side, looking after uh, athletes, so mostly golfers and tennis players, um, which was fascinating. But after a while of a few years of doing that, found myself becoming a bit specialist or seen as being a bit specialist maybe in those areas. So wanted something more of a general uh, practice. And as we mentioned before, a Formula One team or in-house at a sports team is, is perfect for that. So moved over to Williams about five years ago and haven't looked back since. Yeah. Fantastic. Ollie, tell us about how you became a lawyer at Aston Martin. Was it 14 years ago, you said? Well, yeah, no, not all 14 years at, at Aston Martin, no. I, I should say. But um, it's interesting to hear Jeremy's recollection because I wish we'd done it the other way around. His is far more interesting than mine. But, but there you go. I, I started um, uh, similarly to uh, Jeremy in, in the sense that I, I too had heard the rumour about law degrees. So I did an English degree. For, uh, as an undergrad to start off with and did the conversion course in a, in a similar way. And then uh, I guess my professional career started in a, in a magic circle firm and, um, and that was, it was interesting. It was hard work, but it was interesting. Uh, but I, I soon found that I wanted to, to go into sports. So went to another firm that was smaller, that had a good sports practice, still based in the city um, and started to get an insight into various different sports and the whole notion of governing body interactions and teams and players and rights and so on, you know, cut my teeth a bit more in that regard. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't that long, probably about three or four years into that, that I got sent on secondment to what was Braun GP. So at the end of Braun GP, so for the non-F1 enthusiast, that's the Jensen Button winning year in 2009. And, um, and so I was sent there to support one in-house lawyer who was dealing with um, Mercedes that was acquiring that team, um, Michael Schumacher coming out of retirement, Nico Rosberg moving team, and a title partnership with a major petrochemicals partner all at the same time. So that that poor person had to deal with that on her own. And, um, and so I came in and, and did, the, did the classic really. So went on to comment and it was originally three months and then it was six months and then it was eight months and then it was are you ever leaving no I'd, I'd rather stay here so <laughs> so that was that and um so i was at mercedes for uh, in the end for just under 10 years uh, and i left there i was head of legal there for a few years before um mr stroll and his consortium purchased the old uh, force india team as was and they were looking to strengthen certain areas of that team and and one of those areas was legal and so he sort of looked 
uh, looked elsewhere, looked over the fence, so to speak, to see if there was anyone he could take, and, and it was me. So, uh, so I've been at uh, Aston Martin, Racing Point as was, uh, for three and a half years, coming up to four years in April. So um, two teams for me, which um, I think is re relatively unusual for F1 lawyers. I'm not sure if I'm the only one, but uh, I haven't met any others. Um, and it, it's been interesting because um, you see... Mercedes is a big team, and I think no one would dispute that. It's interesting to have lived and breathed that for the best part of a decade and then go to an independent team and see a completely a customer team, a non-works team, and see the same issues from a completely different perspective and then to understand and have a greater appreciation for what the other side might be thinking, saying, what their motivations are. And, um, and that's been really, that's kept it fresh for me. I, I, and, and hence, hence I'm here, still really. Like mind. Tim and Jeremy, no looking back? No, no. no. I mean, it, it's, it's, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it's a dream job for many people, uh, working in sport in-house, whether at a football club or rugby club or a Formula One team, having that whole range of things to do. If there was that one quality that you think is a very important one, what would it be to, to, to hold down that kind of job? Um, I think you've got to be pragmatic. Um, is just my initial reaction on it. Um, and be able to take quick and sound judgments on issues, as Jeremy said at the outset. You just never know what's coming at you. So you've got to be, you've got to be nimble and prepared to react to those on a pragmatic basis. Be my I agree with that. I think you also probably need to try and remain calm. There's a lot going on and lots gets thrown at you and often does get thrown at you. And it's about trying to remain calm and level-headed, I think, when, when unflustered when when that happens. But it's, it, 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 I honestly believe it's not for everyone. It's, if we're all the same, it would be a bit boring. Um, but Because yeah. yeah. you know, a speedy reaction is not, it's just taken as red. It's, it's, it's more, than, more than expected. So... Um, Got to be prepared to, as you say, be nimble. One of the things I love about working in Formula One is is the characters and the people that I've met. I, I can't believe that I would have met such a spectrum of characters had I been working in virtually any other industry. You really do meet some some uh, interesting and different people from standard walks of life. And a side effect of that is you have to be ready for what such characters might ask of you. Mm. And it might be unusual and it might be difficult and demanding in a way that's unconventional for a standard lawyer job. So like Jeremy's alluding to, that that, that variety, it, is, it keeps it novel and interesting. And, and I, I, I love that. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. It's, it's probably gone on for longer than most of us, but I just want to deal perhaps more quickly than I was going to with hot topics in Formula One in the future to look out for, um, starting with you, Tim. Yeah, the one I'd sort of um, highlight is um, uh, sustainability in the sense of um, that's a challenge, I think, which doesn't just face uh, Formula One and the Formula One teams, but faces everybody. And we've just come out of COP27, uh, I guess. Um, but the good news is I think Formula One and the teams are reacting very positively to that um, to that challenge and, and, and taking taking measures uh, you know formula, formula one's um, basically taking a number of measures at the moment probably the most eye-catching one is to have a fully sustainable fuel as part of the 2026 um, engine regulations which in terms of what people optically see 
um, every other couple of weeks on their TV screens is a really positive um, development. But then also behind the scenes, they're also effectively cutting back on their their emissions with freight taking measures in that regard, which then sort of also addresses what goes on to get those cars to the to the track. They're also um, doing 100% renew, uh, renewably powered uh, offices and giving best practice guidelines to to promoters. So a lot of good things going on there with um, effectively them, I think, committing to achieving net zero carbon from factory to flag by 2030. Amazing. Yeah, and then in terms of the teams, obviously can't speak for, for other teams, but I suspect we're all doing very similar things in that. We think we've got, with our various racing series, quite an opportunity to make a, a big difference. Also, the teams do have quite a loud voice that can influence people's behaviors and thinking that they can use beneficially to sort of try and basically take the debate on. We've um, appointed now a sustainability director who's um, leading our charge in that regard, and we've published a sustainability report. Um, we're looking to halve our global greenhouse gas emissions um, footprint by 2030 and have a net zero target by 2040. We're also um, looking at researching uh, and developing a fully circular F1 car as part of the circular economy type of um, debate. So that's just a snapshot of it, and that's really dealing with the sustainability aspects of ESG. There's also the social aspect as well, but in terms of a challenge, I think that's probably a better answer to your question. And um, I, I could go into those, but I think probably yeah. best to confine it to that. So I think um, I think good work being done there is a message I'd send out by the, by the teams and by F1. Thank you, Tim. There's also the uh, environmental accreditation regime, isn't there, from the FIA, which which is interesting and has been an interesting one for us, Aston Martin, because um, we're in the process of constructing a new factory. Mm. Uh, uh, and as a result, as you would imagine, our current factory was sort of bursting at the seams, really. Um, but uh, the FIA has rolled out a accreditation regime where you, you get a number of stars, one, two or three. Um, and with effect from June of this year, if you don't have at least two, you can't race. So, which I find very interesting. And we, we do, we, we have three in fact, but the point is they're taking it seriously. They're looking not just at the races, yeah. they're looking at where the cars are coming from, where people work and what you're doing. And I think that's commendable. Yeah. 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 No, we've also got that three-star rating. It's, and you're right, Tim, but I mean, I was, gonna, I was thinking about this before mm. as well. And I'll probably dive into a bit more detail about the engine regs that you just yeah. mentioned yeah. coming through. Um, that's interesting, not from just the sustainability angle, but also from the regulatory angle that, that Ollie talked through in, um, in detail earlier. So those engine regulations are going to come in in 2026. And I suppose Formula One's always been at the forefront of that technological or, or of any, uh, automotive technological of, uh, advancement. So, for example, inventions like power steering, like ABS, all started in Formula One and then made their way out to, to road cars. So this is, I think, the next one. Uh, any regulation change is, is always big for the teams, but these new engines are going to be just as powerful, so still over a 1,000 horsepower. So just for a bit of uh, context, your standard four Focus probably has about 140, 150 horsepower. These got under, over a 1,000. They'll still have the same power, but they'll use much less energy. And most importantly, they'll have a net zero carbon dioxide emissions, yeah. as Tim said, using fully sustainable synthetic fuels. And I think really excitingly, coming from that that synthetic fuel is the idea the aim and the goal is that that can just be put into any road car with a combustion engine so all of the entire fleet around the world of those cars can be working and can be 
powered or fueled by that uh, synthetic net zero fuel. So it's really exciting, as well as use of more electric power, more harvesting of energy and braking and re redistributing and making it more efficient. It's, uh, it's a really exciting change for the sport. Yeah, I, I think Formula One does have a proud history of, um, you know, basically coming up with technical developments and those then get used in road cars or more, more generally. And, um, and, also, and also slightly related to that, one other thing I'd like to mention is I think uh, Formula One team stepped up at the start of the pandemic and all mobilized together to effectively make ventilators for um, what was then perceived to be the solution mm. uh, as opposed to vaccines, which yes. ultimately ended up, but effectively all did an incredible job in terms of getting those uh, done rapidly and um, deployed. So uh, again, another example of Formula One technology being used for the for the greater good uh, yes. and using the skills and expertise that are there to the benefit of all. Did you have another hot topic, Ollie? Uh, I did. It's not necessarily so um, green, but it, I think it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to open up to the floor because it's so rare we get an opportunity to sit down like this and talk about it. But um, for me, a hot topic that I find interesting is, uh, is F1 audience. F1 audience obviously being quite an imprecise term, but, but what I mean by that is uh, the audience for the sport is changing and has changed. So it, it's got larger, which is great for us. Um, but it's changed in terms of its demographic. So it's also got younger, um, more women are now interested in it, women and girls, which obviously feeds into questions of sort of STEM subjects and so on and, and participation of females. Um, and, and also there are the, the research shows us that there's more uh, different socioeconomic demographics involved. So where previously um, it was a much more obviously male orientated sport as its sort of historic reputation has of a certain age uh, now, and, and people have attributed this to the, to the Netflix mm. effect. You will have heard that said, I'm, I'm sure, in relation to the sport. So I, I find it interesting because we, we're at that sort of, not crest of a wave, but we're certainly on the upwards trajectory of a wave. And I, I wonder how, as teams, as the governing body, as the commercial rights holder, we're going to continue to engage that new audience that we've got. Because they're, they're looking now. They're interested, people are interested, and it's expanding. And, and I think it's really important for us not to miss the opportunity to, to capture it and keep the proposition fresh and interesting. And, and, and I don't actually have the answer to that. And I wondered if anybody else had any thoughts about that. I think um, just sort of reacting to that one, Ollie, I completely agree with it. I think um, one of the important things that we, and I'm sure the other teams are doing, is basically a massive focus on social media mm. and digital. So basically, we're doing a lot of work in that area, which is obviously that exact same demographic. So um, that I think will will help a lot. Um, but I think also we've got to make sure we keep the sport lively and interesting, and um, and just build on it. I think um, I think Formula One's certainly commercially very hot at the moment. You know, I was saying at the outset about how much time I'm spending on sponsorship. That's because basically teams are signing a lot of sponsorship uh, and that's because of this demographic mm. in part I think. yeah Netflix yeah. has been incredibly yeah. helpful yeah. for that I mean that was really the, the catalyst to, in, uh, I think it's changed that demographic but certainly over over the pandemic when people were were, were locked down I, th I think sim racing became quite popular so when the races weren't happening there was the Formula One esports series um, I can't remember the exact name for it but the drivers there were lots of the actual Formula One drivers were participating in this esports series, so that there was something, there was content there for for uh, for fans to enjoy, and, and that esports side of uh, of the business just exploding ever since 
well, it was it was already working going in that direction yeah. pre-pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic and post, it, it's really exploding, which is another way of catering to that new demographic mm. um, and, and, and keeping everyone interested and keeping the commercial proposition yeah. um, at the top of people's minds. It segues quite nicely back to where we started with the financial regulations and keeping the businesses healthy and making sure that the proposition is, is interesting, I suppose. I mean, from an Aston Martin perspective, the fact that it's a younger demographic, it's a broader demographic, it's, for example, had a big growth stateside. You know, uh, it's not that long ago. There were no races in the USA, but now we have Austin. We had Miami for the first time this year. We've got Vegas coming up. Uh, and for Aston Martin and for the broader brand and considering the, the value of teams and so on, that US is a big market. So it, it's it's a really interesting thing. The whole audience topic, I, c- I could talk about it. Yeah, I think, for, I think for us, the US is the biggest sponsorship market. And it's also probably the same for Aston Martin, the biggest market for our road cars. Uh, yes. You know, and that's against context of quite a few years and um, even probably before Formula One became as big in the US as it now is and as we've said Netflix certainly plays a role in that yeah record attendances every other weekend and as Ollie mentioned earlier 24 races next year for the first time it's it's bigger and better every year well on that note I want to thank so much Tim Ollie and Jeremy we've spoken um, it's probably one of the longest podcasts we've had, and that's because it's just been so interesting. I think even for you guys, just to be able to talk to each other about, and but you know, for our listeners, I really want to thank you for sharing your inside experience with each other, your expert experience. Um, so thank you very much, and uh, I hope that we might go and see some cars now, maybe. Thank you for listening to episode six of the Sports Law Podcast. In the next episode, I shall be joined by some of my brilliant colleagues from Blackstone Chambers, the leading chambers for sports law. And we'll be discussing some of the most important cases and legal developments in sport during 2022, and looking forward to the big issues likely to arise in 2023. So join me, Nick DeMarco KC, and my guest to listen to episode five of the Sports Law Podcast, the Sports Law Review of the Year, available to download in early 2023. And don't forget to download the other podcasts from our Sports Law Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and other platforms, so you you can catch up on your listening about sports law issues over the seasonal break. And if you enjoy the podcast, please make sure you do leave us a review or star rating. It all helps.